This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Manchester's indie rock and roll station, XS Manchester. The XS Manchester Long Player, an iconic album in full with Jim Salverson. XS Manchester. Hello, this is the XS Long Player. I'm Jim, and every single podcast I take another classic album and I talk about that album with one of the people who made it be it producer, singer, songwriter, or in the case of today's interview, bassist. Because I'm going to be speaking to Gordon Mokes off of Block Party about their debut album, Silent Alarm, which is one of the standout albums of the early noughties. Now, Gordon's no longer with Block Party. He's off doing his own thing. But you can tell from the conversation I have with him about this album that he absolutely loved his time in the band and the creative space in which they found themselves. It's a fascinating chat about an absolutely brilliant album that if it's been a while since you've listened to it, you can find a link to listen back in the podcast description. There's a Spotify link there, which will take you straight to Block Party Silent Alarm. If you are enjoying this podcast series, let me know. Leave a review in Apple iTunes or wherever it is you listen to podcasts. Leave your comments there. Let me know what you think. Or if there's any classic albums you'd like me to cover, I will check out your suggestions there and I will do my best to do them in the future. I hope you enjoy today's interview. It's a good one. Gordon Mokes talking about Block Party, Silent Alarm. How you doing, Gordon? Hello there. Hi. Pleasure to talk to you about Silent Alarm, which is a brilliant album. Obviously, Block Party's debut album as well. We're going to yep. talk about that today. I want to go right back to the beginning, if that's okay. <laughs> it seems like the sure. logical yeah. place to start, doesn't it? Absolutely. Um, at the very beginning of Block Party, the mm. early stages of the band had formed with Kelly and Matt, and then you joined later in 2003, after, I believe, replying to an advert that you saw in Enemy magazine. Yeah, that's a little bit backwards. I joined okay. before Matt. So Kelly and Russell were the core founding members. There are a few stages of kind of how the band formed. They had met when they were still in school. They had mutual friends. They met at a festival and were writing together. And yeah, I came via an ad in the NME, which was actually, I think, around 2000. So it's getting on maybe past 20 years now, right. which is sort of quite a scary thought. <laughs> And Matt was like really the final piece of the jigsaw. And in fact, when we discovered Matt, having played with many drummers, maybe six or seven different drummers, Matt was really the golden jigsaw piece that really made it all flow. And I think we really felt like when we started playing with Matt, we were on something, I think. It feels like a million miles away now, the idea that you'd see an advert in a magazine for someone to right. join a band and that would kind of begin the process but do you remember what that advert said that attracted you to then approach to yeah 
so it said bassist and drama wanted influences include dj shadow and your nurse by the trailer dead sonic youth and bjork there were probably some other names i think the long pigs actually on there I was never a big long pigs fan but that will give you this sort of idea of the range of things that they were listening to mm. kelly and russell and i was a big trailer dead kind of fan i wanted to make sort of noisy rock music but i was also really into um dj shadow as well so to me it was like oh this is what i kind of want to do i'd really like to meet these guys and it felt pretty good from the beginning but we we just had these teething troubles finding a drummer because I, I think we wanted to make music that was where the rhythm was like a really key part of it and it had to be the right sort of chemistry i think mm. what was your reaction like to hearing the music they were creating for the first time pre mm. you joining so you went in you've seen all these different right. influences but it's very difficult certainly in my head to imagine right. those influences coming together so when you heard what they were creating for the first time mm. how did that hit you it was it was hard, as you say, to kind of quite piece it together. I remember, I think we used to meet at Russell's grand's house and just play in the, in the front room with little amps. And they had a couple of little pieces that were interesting, but they had written this bass line, which was kind of on two notes and it had sort of chords in it on two strings. And they were saying, we've got this bass line, which is a bit fiddly and none of our friends can play it. And I could play it fine. And it, it kind of had this rhythmic quality to it, but it had the sort of shifting chords, kind of a little mogwai, I suppose. Mm. And I thought, yeah, this is this is interesting. And I think, in fact, what appealed was that I, I knew that I could also kind of guide it. I would get a little bit of free reign to sort of add my playing into it. And, and there was a lot of scope there to make it, you know, have identity through the three of us, you know. How much influence did you feel like you could have on the band? Because obviously coming into something that's already part formed can be a bit of a challenge, particularly when they appear to have such strong musical ideas. So how much influence did you feel you could have on the music? How much did it feel like your band? Because it wasn't that long between you joining and Silent Alarm being created, I guess. Well, I mean, three years in the end. So there was a period of learning what it was we were trying to do. But yeah, there was definitely a gap there that required something it wasn't just about finding root notes and just playing along and I think they knew that and I, I that's certainly what I felt was that in places the bass was going to be a really important aspect mm. of the songs and I think getting into a rehearsal space and starting to play playing louder and being able to just sort of say oh I've got these ideas well, how about this for a bass line and having them sort of spark off me I mean Russell's in many ways a bit of a genius when it comes to sort of working melodically off things that he hears and that was always the really interesting thing for me was responding to Russell in the first instance because he didn't come in with songs Russell he responded to Kelly's songs and chords and he came up with these very interesting sort of harmonic departures you know he could really lift a song into an interesting place so I could go with Russell or I could go against Russell and there was just so much scope there that I think it did take a few years to find the space but at that time I didn't really have much on I just started a job in Reading and I was not sort of I really wanted to just play in a band so we just gave it time we, we, we the one thing we had in the beginning was time when you listen back to Silent Alarm as an album mm. are there any moments on it where you think 
that's me that that's the influence that i had if i hadn't done xyz then sure the song would have been completely different positive tension is a good example of that really i mean it opens on the bass line but the interesting thing is that I was always kind of responding to suggestions from Kelly. I seem to remember on that, he played me this track from Queens of Stone Age, uh, Rated R. I think it's called Better Living Through Chemistry. And the bass line sort of comes in and out and sort of snakes off against the guitars. It was like something a bit like this. And, you know, my interpretation of that was in part positive tension. Yeah, so you can hear like how I heard something like that with gaps in it that had its own sort of rhythmic power. And then, of course, when the drums come in on that song, it's all, all over, really. I think what Matt really brought to the band was so transformative. That is the one thing that I would say that you can hear still in that record is, is that sheer sort of vibrancy of Matt's playing. Tell me back to the really early stages the recording of the album what were those studio sessions like when you got in and started making the music that would go on to form silent alarm i get from your music well what i feel when i listen to your music it feels like it would have been a really intense experience putting down that track <laughs> um yes it was it always was partly because you know when we had the songs quite often kelly was like okay i've written that there's a song he wasn't as focused on recording as writing the next thing. Mm. So we were always sort of juggling that. We had not really done any sort of proper recording before we started. After we were signed to Wichita, actually, was it? It was around the time that we were looking for a deal and we got a publishing deal. So we had some money to start going to the studio. And we'd only ever really done demos or very basic recording. And we went in with Paul Etworth to do three tracks, I think, Banquet. A track called Little Thoughts, which wasn't on the record. It was like a precursor. And then Compliments, which did end up on the record. And Paul had all these crazy ideas about, you know, overdubbing like a Casio keyboard just in this part of the chorus and having like twinkly sounds and using all these tricks in the studio. And we we would look at each other and go, what? Why? Why are we doing this? I just want to play the part. And of course, Paul was... The producer's producer he really imagined and heard very specific things and really wanted to experiment so in the first instance we were a bit kind of nonplussed i think and didn't quite understand why we were tinkering away on these other parts that for us didn't feel like they were maybe core parts of the songs musically but he really added this kind of texture and i think once we started to understand how you could use texture it became quite liberating the first, I don't know how many days it was, maybe th three or four days that we did banquet in the studio called the, Ex the Exchange in Camden, which I'm not sure is still there. But it was very much like a, a steep learning curve of how to record and how to try things. You know, we gradually started to get a feel for Paul's approach over that period. What does it take for that to kind of seep in? Because... I think you've spoken before about how Paul Epworth was, was key to the sound of this album. Mm. Is it hearing a bit and then going, oh, okay, that makes sense. Or is it kind of a, is it a light switch moment? Is it a slow seeping of methodology? I'm not sure. I mean, I was open-minded about things we could do. And I was, it was very exciting just to be in a studio. So if somebody said to me, oh, let's try this, you know, I was open-minded, but I think, at the time, I'd sort of taught myself to play bass just with my fingers. I never used a plectrum in the early days. 
and Paul said, look, I want to do a track where you play the pick on the sort of root notes. And I was a bit resistant to that. I just thought, well, look, that's not, that's not my style. But I think the point was to just be flexible and mm. kind of go with, with these ideas because it's really those sort of moments of serendipity and happenstance that really can transform a song or a record. And Paul was great at that. He was so, you know, he's got this sort of infectious energy with recording and you just, you should just go with it and see where it, where it takes you. I read somewhere that one of the issues with the early stages of recording was that Kelly wasn't particularly comfortable singing in front of people. And so that made the recording sessions quite awkward. Was that actually the case? Because that, that must create, it's a bit of an issue being in a band if you don't want to perform in front of others. Uh, there was a bit of that. I mean, I think, I think in some ways that's fair enough because it's a different environment, you know, singing in a enclosed sort of live room or in a vocal booth and having witnesses to that. It's a different experience to just being in a rehearsal room where there's a lot of noise flying around or obviously a gig. I don't think he, yeah, I think he was a little shy and that was fair enough. Most producers I've worked with tend to take a lot of care over that you know it's all about like creating mood in the in the vocal booth and mm. making sure that everyone's relaxed and also getting the band to clear out because you should be able to try stuff out and you should be able to like really just not have to be self-conscious whatever it takes to get to that place where you can just be as expressive as possible i think is totally fair sure once silent alarm came out it ended up picking up a hatful of accolades very early doors was that expected? Because you were doing something that I think was pretty groundbreaking compared to a lot of the music that was coming out in the early noughties. Were you confident that it was going to be groundbreaking, that it was going to be perceived in that way? N not really. It's easy to look back in hindsight. I mean, I think what we started to understand, I mean, it took a few years to get to this point because we tried lots of drummers and we would played lots of gigs. And, you know, there were times when, as with any young band, you go, oh, I've, I'd met this plugger and I was invited into the show, or you're just trying to generate interest and you think it all, you know, there'll be some momentum that grows from that. There was a point, in fact, where we were going to go into the studio with Gordon Raphael, who did the Strokes record. Mm -hmm. He'd seen us play somewhere. And the day that we were due to start recording, he got ill, I think, and he had to cancel. And we were just devastated. We thought, that's it, our break... We're not going to get our break. We're not going to be able to record with Gordon Raphael. Well, in the end, I don't know what would have happened if that would have been a sort of a different path. But I think by the time we had Matt on board and we had these songs, because that's the key thing. I mean, I think once we had She's Hearing Voices in the set and some of these songs that are on this record, we just had a real enormous kind of confidence about what we were doing between us. I don't think we necessarily saw that as a, as opening the door to a kind of success, but we just believed in it and we, we thought it was compelling and we wanted to play it. And I think we were pretty good at, by that point. I mean, definitely after we'd been playing with Matt for about a year, we were tight and it sounded really good. It just flowed from that. I mean, it's how it should be really. If you're, if you're a good band, it should ultimately land you in that place it doesn't always work that way. But I mean, we, we, we definitely felt good about what we were doing. 
as with any record especially a debut there's going to be a long period between when you record it and when it people actually hear it and it was during that time that things started to really ramp up um and and change you know I believe you had some interest from some quite big record labels in the early days as well. But you mentioned mm. Wichita earlier that you stayed with, who allowed you to keep this creative control of the album. How important was that, do you think, in terms of the sound on Silent Alarm? Do you think if you had gone down the major route, do you think you potentially would have ended up with a different product? Yeah, I think so. I think that's the case. I mean, we could have easily discovered Paul anyway and made a record with Paul. But I think the the label would have would have stipulated you know what the songs were gonna how long it was going to be i mean for us in the end none of us could decide what songs to cut so it's quite a long record i think Mm. um it's definitely it's like a record from like the cd era because the record company were like just put it all just put everything because they're all good there's no point cutting stuff off it's all good just have it all and they were very supportive and really just willed us to be as creative as as possible and yeah we were able to come to those decisions together you know i think there's a real journey you go on listening to the album and it's got this interesting energy that starts really frenetic and then maybe kind of chills out and stretches a little bit as it reaches Mm. the end was that a conscious idea as a band to take whoever's listening on this journey through the album i mean i think it was semi-conscious probably would have been between the four of us i think we would have had different levels of consciousness on that one it's kind of the opposite to a gig, that... I suppose, isn't it? Like you, a gig kind of builds up to the end and this is doing the opposite. Right. We knew we had this sort of range of songs. I mean, that's the thing. We were, if you watch Matt play, he just had so much energy and the, and the songs we wrote were just necessarily had a lot of that energy, like Eating Glass and Positive Tension and so on. Luno in particular, which is just breakneck speed. Mm. But we also had these other songs and we always had these more mellow songs um, and were, I don't think, afraid to investigate that area and actually sort of really dial things back. So once we had this sort of suite of songs, it was really just how do you tell a story? How do you weave the narrative? I think most good records for me do have a bit of a lull sort of in the beginning of side, side two and then they come back up to a kind of more of a climax towards the end of the record. And we, you know, we had the songs to do that. Again, it's like a jigsaw puzzle. How do you arrange these to tell some kind of story or create some kind of mood? And it's a tricky process because by the time you've recorded a record and you've heard all these mixes, when you get to like sequencing, you've heard these songs, you, you can no longer be objective about the song. So it's actually quite difficult to step back from the songs and work out how they fit together. So there's a little bit of, you know, hope for the best with that, I think. I think it's a bit of a lost art as well. I don't think the same considerations put nowadays into how an album is constructed from start to finish because of the way people listen. They listen on Spotify. So it's kind of, yeah. it's very much front loaded nowadays rather than a journey. So it's really interesting. That was starting to be the case back then. But our manager always said you should have three really strong songs at the beginning of the record, just open with like a, a salvo of really punchy songs. So in a way, you know, that kind of idea of grabbing the attention was was something that we we were doing. Talk to me about a couple of your favourite moments off the album, Gordon. And these can be moments mm. of musicality. It can be things that spark off memories, be they good memories or bad memories or just significant things that happened during the process. But if you were going to pick a couple of tracks off Silent Alarm, what would they be? Well, I mentioned Positive Tension. 
because of Matt's drumming. I think that it's a bit obvious to go for the for the first song and the last song, but in some ways they they are kind of the the sort of capstones of the record, even emotionally, and especially compliments because compliments was. And I should say that we haven't what we haven't talked about is most of this record was recorded in Copenhagen. We moved there for a month and worked out of this studio. The studio didn't have the, the greatest equipment and they spent the first couple of days kind of getting microphones to work and waiting for technicians to turn up who never did. And everyone was scratching their heads for the first three days going, this might have been a mistake. Like we've got this budget to make a record and we've already committed to being in the studio for a month. But so Like Eating Glass was probably one of the first songs that Matt attempted on the drums in that studio space. And we first started to really get a feel for, you know, what we were going to be able to produce in that space. And of course, the way the drums come in on this record, I remember, this is kind of like a bit of a name drop quote, but I, I once met Peter Hook, we did a interview with him for The Guardian, and his opening gambit about the record was, did the drummer's dad mix this? Because it's so <laughs> drum heavy. <laughs> and of course, that's what you hear when you, when the, when that, it's got that long intro of Russell's guitar sort of going through many octaves. And then eventually this drums come in and it's just huge. So it's a very exciting moment. And it really, it sort of sums up in many ways what it felt like for me to play against Matt and to play with Matt because that sound is what I used to you know I used to live next to that sound you know constantly on tour in clubs and venues across the world and and it was that exciting to play with Matt so that song and of course again the bass line in the the opening verse the bass line's quite sort of elastic and it's goes up and down a bit and it's sort of intricate in it but not in a pretentious way I don't think but you get this sense I think that we had this interplay we were we weren't just like one two three four root note that we were wanting to go further than that so that song definitely it's got this kind of impact which I think forever will be you know what it felt like to be in the band you've mentioned the drums a few times now in this conversation and how important mm. it was to the sound do you think that genuinely is central to what block party were doing at this time or does that come from being your kindred spirit in the in the rhythm section <laughs> sure it's a bit of both i mean i do love matt i do love matt to death but you know i think it needed something i think there were lots of drummers who in many ways could have played the parts as matt wrote them or in a slightly different way but i think you know the fact that we played with so many different drummers and there was always something kind of missing mm. until matt that for me, it kind of like, as I said, it sort of, it felt like it had fallen into place with that. And in some ways he would, he would say he wasn't a drummer first. He was a, a guitarist first, but I think that's Matt being self-deprecating. He's, he was easily the loudest drummer I played with and he had this great sort of musicality and he combined things that, that I loved, which were melody and rhythm and sort of power. And I do think that they were important at a time when it was still important. And I would obviously now it's not a time where you can impress live if there are no gigs. But mm. at that time, it was so important to be able to go on a stage and project something. And I always felt that we did. 
you know, it was a unique chemistry. I mean, that's the beauty of of a record like this because it's it's not just one tone. These are not people who've just listened to the Rolling Stones and fetishized a certain kind of music. We were very open-minded. In fact, all of us came from slightly different directions musically, but we found a common ground and some of that was a bit weird, you know. So Matt was as much a part of that as as anyone. You know, Kelly had these really fascinating vocal ideas and lyrics Mm. and he had a slightly off-kilter way of constructing music there was this kind of like we're building piece by piece at times and some of the detail for us always seemed kind of a bit odd I mean helicopter's a good example because it's got the pre-chorus has this dropped beat it's like seven the pre-choruses are in seven or they go between eight and seven and for a while, we were just going around and around on this sort of seven beat bar, just going, I don't get it. <laughs> but that's how he heard it. He kept saying, I hear it like a, a tape getting stuck in the player. And that's what helicopter, that's how he heard the pre-chorus of helicopter. And so once we constructed these little bits, you could step back and go, wow, there's actually something really interesting that's been constructed out of some what f- felt counterintuitive blocks that in the end were really sort of fascinating songs you know yeah that's fascinating how do you feel about this album now when you look back on it i don't know when the last time you listened to the album was but do you feel like it's undoubtedly it's a classic album it's up there with the great indie albums of all time do you feel like it stood up to the last 18 years wow good question i had a period and it still happens to me you know it will come on six music or something. So I hear shards of it every now and again. I honestly haven't sat down and listened to it end to end for a few years because I played it so much that I was like, I didn't really need to hear it. I always felt that, as I've said, we were slightly outside of what was happening at that time. We weren't just like another dance punk band. You know, we, Franz Ferdinand was, was a really important band for us. And open doors for us but we always felt like we were slightly outside of you know what was going on so it's hard for me to sort of contextualize it now from a distance because even at the time I'm not sure it it totally fitted but you know those songs still live with me and they always will I mean they're part of me they're sort of in my DNA it's been a while since I played many of these songs but I could pick up a bass guitar right now and play pretty much every baseline on this record so it's there and it's for others to judge how that will sit in the world but it's you know it'll always be in my heart Kelly said a few years back that he can't listen to Silent Alarm anymore because he just hears his mistakes on the album yeah you listen back do you feel the same way or do you turn the opposite way do you go do you listen to the really I guess it depends on your how you approach things in life as to whether you hear the negatives or the positive <laughs> but how do you find it when you listen back yeah I mean I think Kelly and I had some probably Russell as well we had similar in that way is that we were perfectionists to a degree. There were bits here and there where I, w- I would have not played it differently, but I was always trying to like tease out things that I'd done and make them more sort of discernible to the passing listener. But I think, especially when you do bass, it's just details and you can't get too keyed into those. But yeah, I always hear the mistakes. I think that, you know, there's something to be said for just leaving 
something like that alone for a good 10 years and then come back to it with sort of fresh ears. I don't know if I would hear, I probably would still hear the mistakes, <laughs> but I hope they would not stand out in the same way. Gordon, it's been absolutely fascinating talking to you about Silent Alarm. Really appreciate sure. your time talking about the album. Obviously, you're not with the current incarnation of Block Party, but you're still making mm. music. What are you doing nowadays? I mean, it's been a bit of a hiatus from everything this last year. Young Legionnaire is my sort of main thing when I'm making music, mm. and we've been talking for probably two years about doing a third record. Um, that's Paul Mullen, who was in Your Codename is Milo, and me and Dean Dean Pearson he's in California so it's been difficult to get anywhere with that but hopefully something there'll be something from that in the near future I'm actually about to go into the studio this week and I have a few sort of songs that are more kind of like I hesitate to say sort of solo project type things but more kind of acoustic Mm. slightly more sort of restrained that I've just had and not never been sure what to do with so i'm gonna actually start recording some things that sounds exactly and... how solo projects start <laughs> That's, they, right. they start off as going to the studio just to record something and turn into something bigger yeah i do have like another idea for a band in london there's a couple of guys who i'm good friends with been meeting up and chatting about making a, a record so we, yeah there's a few things that are just sort of juggled into the air that haven't landed at this point Sounds like there's a lot of exciting things going on um, and hopefully there will be a third record from Young Legionnaires as well. But Gordon, thanks for your time. Really nice to chat sure, to you about you. Block Party, Silent Alarm. Yeah, great. No worries. The Access Manchester Long Player, an iconic album in full with Jim Salverson. Access Manchester. Boom, done, dusted. That is it for today's episode. Cheers for listening. If you enjoyed it, and this is the first of the long player series you've checked out, go back in the timeline. There's some brilliant episodes, brilliant conversations with the likes of Stephen Street, the producer, Simon from Kaiser Chiefs, Badly Drawn Boy. I particularly like the episode with Adam Nutter of The Music. You can go back and listen to all those conversations and rediscover some classic albums in this podcast series. There is more coming soon, so please do follow, do subscribe, and we'll let you know when the next series is ready. Access Manchester.